in number 16, it's recorded that a man named Korah, he did not like that God appointed Moses as the, as the leader of, of the Israelites at that time. So he gathered a large group, about 250 men, and he went to go confront Moses with Aaron. In response, God opened up the earth at Korah's tent with his family, as well as two companions and his families. And the earth opened up and swallowed them. And then the earth enclosed back over them. And then fire from God came and consumed the, consumed the 250 men. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah, a, a man of God, he had a vision of the throne of God. And he, he heard God's voice and how it just shook the very foundations of the throne room. And so he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then Isaiah stood he, before God, he trembled, and he, he cursed himself. Woe is me. As he was coming undone before God because of his unclean lips, because of his sin. In Acts 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira come before Peter. Ananias first and later Sapphira. And they attempt to deceive Peter. That, yep, we sold this land and this is all the money that we're, we're giving. It's, it's all the money we've got from the land. This is it. God struck Ananias dead. Sapphira came three hours later. Same lie. God struck her dead. We see throughout scripture that hell was originally designed for Satan and his demons. But it's the final place for the unrighteous, for the lawbreakers, for the sinners. And Jesus described it as, as a furnace of fire, a place where the worm does not die, where there's gnashing of teeth, where there's weeping, where the fire is not quenched. And God's word said there's no one's righteous. There's no one who's righteous. There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one who does good. Each of us deserve to have the earth open up and swallow us and uncover us. Each of us deserve, as we walk before the throne of God, to come undone before God and tremble because of our sin. And each of us deserve to be struck dead instantly for the first sin we committed this morning. And each of us deserve a place in the lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because we are unrighteous. And God knows this. And so he planned before the foundations of the earth to send his, send his son Jesus to earth as a child. And then Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly as the long-awaited Messiah King, which he rightfully is and was and continues to be. But he knew why he came. And then he agonized over this in the garden. He knew the endless depth of sorrow that was before him. He was about to take the cup of God's wrath. Wrath against your sin and my sin and our unrighteousness. So then he went through the betrayal. He went through the trials. He went through the torture. And that brings us here today. Good Friday. The cross. 
The Apostle Paul says about the cross in 1 Corinthians 1, he writes this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is foolishness to the lost. Those who are perishing, a man, a Jewish man crucified on a cross, which was not untypical whatsoever, it's foolishness. But Paul says, for those of us who are saved, it is the power of God. So this evening, we pondered the cross, the power of God. And I want us to do uh, this evening, this is what I want us to do. We're going to walk through Matthew's account of the death of Christ, of the foretold sorrow of Christ on the cross for your sin and for my sin. And we're going to see it in light of the two passages that John and Seth read for us, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. And we'll be um, frequently flipping over to to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. So if you want to put a bookmarker there, that might be wise to do on a practical level. But as we as we kind of go through this, keep this in mind. Isaiah wrote his passage, the Isaiah 53, 650 years before Jesus was born. 650 years. Psalm 22, if you look there, was written by King David who lived about 1,000 B.C., so about 1,000 years before Jesus came to earth, King David penned that psalm. And also keep in mind that this psalm was written about 600 to 700 years before crucifixion was even invented. And David writes about this. So let's consider the crucifixion this evening that Jesus endures for your sin and my sin. Last Sunday, we ended with Pilate who handed Jesus over to be crucified. But first he was mocked and he was tortured. And we pick up here in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And so they start leading Jesus out. And he's carrying his cross to the place where he's going to be crucified. And Matthew here notes that the soldiers compelled a man who's onlooking, who's looking at this, a man named Simon of Cyrene. So no doubt Jesus was in such a rough condition. Remember, he, he, just got, uh, he just got flogged. He just got scourged. And he's in a rough condition. And so they, get, they force a man, Simon, to carry the cross with him. And, and this man, you see his name is Simon. It's a Jewish name. So most likely, this is a, a pilgrim who came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And little did he know that he found himself helping the Passover lamb himself go to his sacrifice. Continue in verse 33. And then when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
So in the Mosaic law, it required executions to happen outside the city, outside the camp. And so they're heading outside of Jerusalem. On top of that, the Romans, they liked crucifying their victims in a very opening place, whether it be at crossroads, whether it be on a hill, somewhere that people can see because it was a vivid reminder of what happens to those who oppose Rome. And so they do it on this hill, the Golgotha in Aramaic or Calvary in Latin. And it says that the Roman soldiers, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And this gall, uh, it refers to anything bitter. And Mark identifies it as myrrh, which was a narcotic. Now, the, the crucifixion, this whole process, was meant to inflict maximum pain. And so offering him myrrh was not any kind of act of mercy. Rather, it was very practical because they offered it to stupefy the victim as they drove drove nails into his hands and feet so he wasn't flailing everywhere violently. And so they, they gave him myrrh. But as you read here, it says, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. He would not drink it. If we remember in the, the garden, Jesus agonized, if this cup can, may it pass. If this cup can, may it pass. And at the end, Jesus gets up and he goes to meet his betrayer. Why? Because he already decided he's going to drink the full cup of God's wrath. And so we see here that Jesus will not be take a narcotic. He wouldn't do that because he has decided to take the, the full cup of God's wrath. He would complete it, and he would endure it completely. 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And so when it says when they crucified him, this does not mean it's over. What it means is they have him attached to the cross, and they just put the cross in the hole in the ground that was prepared for it. The crucifixion has only just begun. Now, I do not at all mean to get too graphic. But I want us to understand just a hint of what was going through or what was going on here, what was going, what Jesus was going through. So crucifixion, it was first invented by the Persians. The Greeks then used it, and then the Romans perfected it. They crucified thousands of people. It's estimated at this time of Christ, the Romans had already crucified Hundreds of men in Israel alone. And so three men, Jesus and the two thieves, three men being crucified outside of Jerusalem was virtually of no significance. It was very common. It was everyday life. I want to share with you two descriptions of crucifixion, what the victim went through. And again, I do not mean to be graphic, but I think there's value in seeing what Jesus went through. So this first one's from Frederick Farrar. He says this, A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have. Dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of untended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position on the cross made every movement painful. 
The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds, inflamed by exposure, gradually gangrene when the victim took several days to die. The arteries, especially the head and the stomach, become swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself, of death, the awful unknown enemy, at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. And one thing is clear. The first century executions were not like the modern ones, for they did not seek a quick, painless death, nor the preservation of any measure of dignity for the criminal. On the contrary, they sought an agonizing torture which completely humiliated him. And it's important that we understand this, for it helps us realize the agony of Christ's death. The second description is from a medical doctor, Dr. Truman Davis. He writes this. At this point, another phenomenon occurred. As the arms fatigued, great waves of cramps swept over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps came the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by the arm, the pectoral muscles, the large muscles of the chest, were paralyzed, and the intercostal muscles, the small muscles between the ribs, were unable to act. Air could be drawn into the lungs, but could not be exhaled. Jesus fought to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. And finally, the carbon dioxide level increased in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subsided. Spasmodically, he was able to push himself upward to exhale, exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. And it's, it was undoubtedly during these periods that he uttered the seven short sentences that are recorded. He suffered hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, and searing pain as tissue was torn from his lacerated back from his movement up and down against the rough timbers of the cross, then another agony began a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium, the sac surrounding the heart, slowly filled with a serum and began to compress the heart. The end was rapidly approaching. The loss of tissue fluids had reached a critical level. The compressed heart was struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood to the tissues, and the tortured lungs were making a frantic effort to inhale small gulps of air. And so we see here, Jesus not only died, he died a horrible humiliating, excruciating death. A death on the cross. Isaiah said this about the Messiah 650 years before this event. He said this, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then a thousand years before this event, at least 600 years before crucifixion was even invented, King David penned this words about the Messiah. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast 
lots. And so the sorrow that we see the Messiah go through for your sin and my sin was prophesied centuries before it would even happen. And that was God's plan all for your sake and my sake. For all those who believe, who look at the cross and believe. And so this is all going on. And we see in our passage that Matthew, instead of focusing on the pain that Jesus is going through, he focuses on the people and the events going on around this. And that's what we're going to see. And he first focuses on the soldiers. And he says they divided his garments, which was typically five. There was one, the sandals, the inner cloak, a headpiece, a belt, and an outer cloak. And they were dividing it amongst themselves, exactly as King David. They were casting lots to divide his clothing. Verse 36, Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so the soldiers kept watch. It was their job to stay there until the victim died. Why? Because they had to make sure that family and friends didn't rescue them and that they didn't put them out of their misery to escape the suffering. You can almost hear the echoes from Psalm 22. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bowls encompass me. Strong bowls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And the custom was that they would nail the charges against the victim to the cross that they hung on. And that's exactly what they did with Jesus. And you see the charges were a mockery. They said, Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the thing was, it was the truth. He is the king. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians. He says this, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so Paul is saying, yes, that our charge, our sin, our unrighteousness, our trespasses, that was charged against Christ. It was nailed to his cross, not ours. So that we could be forgiven, for those who believe could be forgiven and walk free. Our charges were nailed to his cross. Verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let, him, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For, set, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Isaiah 53, he writes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one for whom men hide their faces. He was despised and he was esteemed not. Psalm 22 but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. 
He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And so we see these prophecies literally happening. Literally happening, almost word for word. And they were, the Jews themselves were fulfilling them as they said these words, as they mocked Jesus. If you see in one they're mocking, they said, hey, if he comes on the cross, we'll believe in him. And what an utter lie. As they saw Jesus do incredible miracles, he even raised the man from the dead. And they didn't believe. 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Darkness. So Jesus' birth, it was accompanied with light. The star that the wise men follow. The, the, the glory of the Lord that shone around the, the shepherds as the angels approached them. But now at Jesus' death, there's darkness. Mark tells us that Jesus, his crucifixion started at the third hour, which is nine o'clock. Matthew tells us here that at six o'clock, which is noon, darkness came across the world. And it, and it, and it lasts into the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. So the darkness for three hours in the middle of the day seems unbelievable, but it's recorded. Origen, he reports a Roman historian, a pagan, he reports this darkness happened. Tertullian, he connected with some pagans, non-Christians, and they've recorded this as well. And there's even a report that Pilate, a report he sent to the Emperor Tiberius that assumed that the empire knew that there was this darkness, and he even mentions that happened from noon to three o'clock. And Luke uses... When Luke describes it in his account, he uses uh, in a way as if it was an eclipse. Not that it was an eclipse, but the sun was blocked out. And the thing was, historically, the moon was as far as it could be from the sun. So it wasn't an eclipse. It was a God-ordained event, darkness. It was darkness at the end of Christ. In number six, God gives Aaron a blessing to bless Israel. It goes like this. You probably have heard of it. He says this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And Jesus at this moment is experiencing the exact opposite. He's taken on the sin and wrath of God. The wrath of God, our sin, God's vengeance on sin that you and I deserve. He is not being blessed. God's face is turning. His God's face is not shining on. There's darkness. He's becoming a curse for us. As Paul says in Galatians 3, he became a curse for us. And the God of Father is turning his face as he cannot look upon sin, as it says in Habakkuk 1.13. So there's darkness. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So at three o'clock, nailed to the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the only time in scripture that Jesus 
does not address God as his father the only time. He's forsaken. There's a distance. There's a separation. Somehow, within the Godhead, within the Trinity, there's separation from God the Father and Jesus the Son. Jesus does not cease to be God. He does not cease to be part of the Godhead, not at all. But somehow, there's this forsaken going on. There's this separation, this distance. Jesus no longer is experiencing the sweet fellowship from the Father, but he's experiencing the utmost wrath and vengeance and hatred as he takes on the guilt of millions. In Romans 3, Paul says that Jesus was put forth as a propitiation by his blood. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus became a curse for us in order to satisfy the justice and wrath of God. So he became the means the wrath of God would be satisfied. Isaiah writes this in 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And some passages say it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I shall divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experiences that he was forsaken by God. The wrath of God. At that time, the Psalms wasn't broken up into the chapters that we do we have now in our Bibles. So the way they referred to it wasn't Psalm twenty two. They refer to it by saying the first sentence. And that's what we see here Jesus does. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So while he definitely was forsaken, he also points the people listening to this song. And they, it'd be hard for them not to see how this prophecy is being fulfilled in front of their eyes. Verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. 
And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. In John, it's recorded that Jesus says, I am thirsty. So one of the soldiers, he goes and gets wine, which would not be merciful at all. It would just prolong the torture. And yet, even though uh, this prophecy in Psalm 22 is literally a curve to their eyes, they continue to mock him. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So here's the end. Here's the end. For the longest time, Jesus is saying, uh, it's not my hour. My hour is coming. My hour is coming. Then he says, the hour is at hand, he says in the garden. Then he goes through all of that, and it comes to this point here. John records that Jesus says, it is finished. And then he yielded his spirit. Men cannot take his spirit, but he willingly surrenders it. His life as a penalty for sin. And three massive things occurred. Number one, the curtain in the temple which separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, which no one went to except for the chief priest, one day of the whole year went behind there. And that curtain symbolized the separation from God. As In the Holy of Holies, it symbolically represented God's resting, His presence. That curtain was torn in half, it says. From the top to the bottom. So this curtain is massive. It's 30 feet high. It's thick. And it was torn. It was torn. There's no longer a divide. Through faith in Jesus we have access. Hebrews 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can we can draw near to the throne of grace. The curtain was torn. The wrath for your sins the wrath for my sins, the, the, the wrath for the sins of those who believe has been satisfied. It is finished. And then it says there was an earthquake. It split rocks, a divine statement. At the Mount Sinai, when God met Moses and the Israelites, the mountain shook. God's presence there. God is making a statement. On top of that, it says some believers from the past were resurrected. Can you believe this? Some of those in the past who believed in the Christ to come, they were resurrected and it said they went into Jerusalem after Jesus was raised. So three days from this point, they would come. Can you imagine this? Darkness in the middle of the day. Commotion happening at the temple because the, the, the curtain's been torn. There's an earthquake going on and if that's not enough, there's people, dead people, raised dead in the tombs who would come out in a few days and would show themselves to people. How did people react? Verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with them, keeping a watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And so here's the response from pagans, Roman soldiers. They were filled with awe, which that word actually means like sheer panic. It's the same word used. When the apostles saw Jesus, Walk on water, and they thought it was a ghost. That's the word that they used, the sheer panic. So 
So the soldiers, they see all this, the darkness, the earthquake, and they're like, what is going on? And then they proclaim this, truly, this was the Son of God. These pagans recognized Jesus' true identity. Verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to them, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So in contrast to the, the Jewish leaders who are mocking Jesus, the pagans, they went from unbelief to belief, and then you have these women who are continuing to be loyal to Christ in faith. The other accounts say that the only other person there was John, the apostle, the one who Jesus loved. Judas, he already hung himself. The other ten, they were hiding. Verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled the great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and, other, and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So you have a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He goes and he asks for the body and gets Jesus' body ready for a burial. Now in Mark's account, we learn that this Joseph, he was on the Sanhedrin. But Luke makes it very clear that he did not consent to the plan to kill Jesus. Matthew, you see here, he adds that he was a rich man. Why is this a big deal? Isaiah 53. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. They rolled a great stone in front of it to keep out animals and grave robbers. And again, we get this picture of the loyal woman present during all this. And then we read the following day, verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. What do we see here? The religious leaders hated Jesus so much. It says that the next day, which is a Sabbath, which the, the Jews did not meet with pagan rulers on the Sabbath. Yet here they do. It says the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before him. The chief priests were mainly the Sadducees, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not like each other. Yet they joined in their hatred of Jesus. And so they say, yep, hey, we want to make sure that the disciples don't steal his body and then lie that Jesus rose again. So it says they seal the tomb with a guard of soldiers. Uh, let me give you a picture of what that means. That means about 12 to 16 soldiers, each of them trained to defend six square feet. Four of, the, four of them would be on guard while the other eight plus would sleep. They'd rotate every three hours. If a guard fell asleep on his duty, he'd be burned alive with fire started by his clothing. If their mission failed, 
all of them would be executed. And so the Jewish leaders took every precaution they could to make sure Jesus stayed in the tomb and that he stayed dead. And so we have the account of the cross. The foretold sorrow of Christ on the cross for your sin, for my sin, for those who believe. The old rugged cross. Not folly, but the power of God. Wayne Grudem, he writes this, that Jesus, his death met four needs of ours as sinners. Number one, we deserve to die for the penalty of our sin. Number two, we deserve to bear God's wrath against our sin. Number three, we are separated from God by our sin. And number four, we are in bondage to our sin and to the kingdom of Satan. Through the cross, Jesus is, number one, our sacrifice. He gave himself up to pay the penalty for our sin. Number two, through the cross, Jesus is our propitiation. He removed the wrath of God. He satisfied the wrath of God as being a propitiation by his blood. Number three, through the cross, Jesus is our reconciliation. He, Through faith in Christ, we are reconciled to God through Jesus. We have peace. And number four, through the cross, Jesus is our redemption. He has paid the price with his life to ransom us, to buy us back. How shall we respond? Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe in Jesus alone for salvation. Cry out to God for mercy. To a God who would be completely just in letting you receive exactly what your sins deserve damnation and hell and follow him and obey him let me close with the ending of psalm 22 and this will lead us right into this sunday the resurrection so psalm 22 starting at verse 27 all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Pray with me. God... Lord, may you burn in our minds the reality of hell. Lord, may you shake our consciences with the severity of our sin. Lord, may our hearts melt with the grace as we look to the cross. And may we sit in this hot spring of your love. And God, may you, may you bless us, we pray, Lord. Amen.